Welcome to the Truth Wars Podcast with Dr. Olin Stubbs. Olin has recently written his first book, which is titled, What to Do with Worry, Why Playing God Never Works. You can find Olin's book on ChristianFocus.com and Amazon.com. Now, here's Olin. Father, please help us... um Listen well, learn well, remember well. Mainly, Lord, I pray for myself, for all of us, that we would taste and see something of your goodness, of your glory, uh, that would humble us, that would inspire us, uh, that would fill up our spiritual batteries uh, to go live godly lives that honor, please, and magnify you. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. So... We just spent all that time looking at Saul, and I was going to do something similar with David, but Talon reminded me, and I appreciate that, that I did that with the guys at New Year's Conference. So it was only a year ago, and so uh, probably remember that. So I'm going to do something a little bit different. We're going to look at a story that comes from late in David's life. Uh, so this is, uh, let's start in 2 Samuel 7. This is just by way of introduction. And part of what we're going to see is, I mean, David, in some sense, is the gold standard of the Old Testament. I mean, he, he was known as the godly king. Um, there, you read the rest of Kings and Chronicles, and a lot of times if it's trying to say something good about a king, it's like he, was, he was like his father David. Saying something bad about a king, he was, like, he was not like his father David. So David was not perfect, but he was the, the standard. And yet, even he struggled with pride. So 2 Samuel chapter 7, skip down to verse 9. And this is uh, God speaking to David. I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all of your enemies from before you. And I will make you a great name, like the names of the great men who are on the earth. I will also appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that, my, that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again. Nor will the wicked afflict them anymore as formerly. Even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people, Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies, the Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. So I don't know if you remember this story, uh, but this is really when David has peace with the vast majority of his enemies. He's conquered. He's established as the king. And he decides, I want to build a temple for the Lord. I want to build a house for the Lord. And at first, Nathan says, sounds like a great idea. Go do it. And then God speaks to Nathan, sends him back to David and says, no, you're not going to be the one to build the temple. Uh, your son Solomon will build it. And, and we don't know for sure, but there, there seemed to be maybe a little bit of David was getting too big for his britches. Hey, I've done all this. I'll do the next thing. I'll build a temple. And God had said, no, no, no. You're not going to build a house for me. I'm going to build a house for you. Main, that's not our main point here. The main point is this. God had made him a promise. You're always going to have a son to sit on the throne. You are established. I'm going to keep you established. Very clear promise. And this is the Davidic covenant if you want to sound theological. But um, you, you can go read 2 Samuel 22. You can read Psalm 18 where David realizes God has established me. He's basically given me victory over all my enemies. There's a lot of praise and worship and thanksgiving to God. It's really powerful. But then let's skip to the end of 2 Samuel to chapter 24, and we're going to look at David's pride. But like I said, comes out late in life. 2 Samuel 24, starting verse 1. 
Now again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and it incited David against them to say, Go number Israel and Judah. The king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, Go about now through all the tribes of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, and register the people, that I may know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, Now may the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of my lord the king still see. But why does my lord the king delight in this thing? Nevertheless, the king's word prevailed against Joab and against the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to register the people of Israel. Now, um, verse 1 is a strange verse. Okay, God is mad at the people. We don't know why. But there's some sin, right? God gets angry at sin. God doesn't get angry unless there's sin. So there's some sin in the nation of Israel. And he's angry at them. And then it says, it incited David against them. Now, this is, can be really bothersome. And this is not our main point, but let me say something about it just so it doesn't trip us up. Um, James 1.13 says, God is not tempted by sin, nor does he tempt anyone. Right? And, but each one is tempted when, by his own evil desire, he's dragged away and enticed. The Westminster Confession of Faith, okay, which one of, if not the greatest kind of confessions of all time, has a phrase in there that's so helpful talking about this concept, and it says this, God does no violence to the will of the creature. So here, here's an easy way to understand it, I think. There's never some person out there saying, oh, I just want to do righteousness. I just, all of my desires in my heart is to do something godly, but God just won't let me. God's making me sin. Nobody can say that, genuinely. But I bet all of us sitting here could honestly say, I can think of times in my life where my heart was filled with sinful desires and I was planning sin and I was moving towards sin, but then God did something in His restraining grace and He stopped me. Right? We all got a testimony like that? So let's think about it in light of God's restraining grace. What would happen if in that moment God just removed His restraining grace? We would go headlong into sin. Why? Because we wanted to go headlong into sin, right? And I think the best way to interpret Scripture is with Scripture. The only way that you can interpret that phrase, the Lord incited David, is to say that God took his restraining grace off of David for a second. Now just meditate on that for a second. That'll humble you. Whatever good is going on in your life, why is good going on in your life? Because God is having restraining grace keeping you back from your sinfulness. You want a motive to get up and pray every morning? Oh God, lead me not into temptation today. Don't remove your restraining grace from me or I could shipwreck my faith. It's a great way to pray every day. It's mysterious, but not our main point. There's a lot of mysterious stuff in this passage. Verse 2, he wants to have a census. And listen, go read Exodus chapter 30 verse 13. The Mosaic law gave commands on how to do a census rightly. So a census in and of itself is not a bad thing. Counting numbers in and of itself is not a bad thing. I mean, even in the New Testament. How many people got saved when Peter preached at Pentecost? 3,000. How do we know that? Because the Holy Spirit inspired somebody to count and somebody to remember and somebody to tell Luke and somebody to write it down. Right? And then a little bit later, it says 5,000 men. They were having a hard time keeping up. They're like, let's just count the men. We can't keep up with everybody. So there, there is a righteous, godly way to count numbers. But there's also a sinful way to count numbers, right? Now, something was wrong here. 
even Joab, who if you, you talk about doing some character studies, do a character study on Joab. You know, in like old cowboy movies, the good guy would wear a white hat and the bad guy would wear a black hat. You know what color hat Joab would have on? Zebra striped. Because sometimes he's really good and sometimes he's really bad. Again, sounds like us. But it's like this time he gets it right. He's like, don't do this, King David. And they've been like best friends. I mean, he'd been this loyal servant. He's like, don't do it. Now, it's probably something that in verse 2, David's saying that I may know. Kind of that I may delight in it. That I may boast in it, this kind of thing. I just, I just want to relish in my success, my power. I want to take a sense of ownership for myself. There, there's pride here. It was, seems that David was either wanting to trust in his military strength rather than God, or just to boast and delight in what he had accomplished, how far he had brought Israel, or some combination of both. So at the, at the root is pride, right? It's either boasting in our own accomplishments and not giving God the due glory, or it's trusting in your own resources once you are established rather than still trusting in God. Let's just imagine that Casey comes to you tomorrow and says, hey, next semester you're moving to Slidell. Isn't there a campus in Slidell? No, Lafayette, no. Lafayette, okay, we'll go with Lafayette. See, I don't know my geography around here. And says, you're starting a new campus ministry by yourself starting January 1. Have a nice day. How overwhelmed are you going to feel? How much are you going to feel like, oh my goodness, I have to start praying. I have to start begging God and wrestling with God and pleading with God and I better be plugged in and abiding in the vine and I have no resources. And Casey said he's not sending me any money. He's not giving me any help. He's not going to come visit me. No staff team. All by myself. You're going to feel totally dependent on God. And then imagine you get to say, maybe John MacArthur calls you and says, hey, I'd like you to come be my ministry assistant. You know, you just kind of walk around with me and do ministry with me. I'll be the leader. You just kind of carry my suitcase, and every once in a while I'll let you jump in and, you know, share testimony or something. It's like, okay, that's still kind of intimidating, but it's like, I'll be with John MacArthur. He's not perfect, but he's been doing this thing a while. He can carry the heavy load, and I'll just, I can kind of depend on John MacArthur a little bit. The reality is, in both situations, you should feel just as desperate, just as dependent, just as clingy. But sometimes when we've been doing ministry for a long time, or maybe we we're pretty new to it, but we just had one semester where there's a lot of fruit, and we kind of feel like things are going right, again, guys, it can be so subtle and subconscious, but we can stop putting our hope and our trust and our dependence in the Lord and start to put it in our own efforts and accomplishments. And just be careful. And again, one of the reasons we need to be praying so much is it practically keeps us from that. That's, that's one of the good things about slowing down to pray. It's like, Hey, Lord, you are blessing my socks off right now, and thank you. I like it. Don't stop. But please don't let me become rationally lazy and forget about you and start to take credit for myself. Keep me in a posture. Remember what we talked about with Saul? Spiritual prosperity is actually a bigger danger for us than when our ministry is struggling. And it seems like that's what happened to David. Now, it may be also that Israel was preparing for a military conflict that God hadn't sanctioned. You know, David wanted to go out and take some new land that God wasn't behind. So he's like, do a census. We need to figure this out. That would be a little bit like us wanting to launch a new ministry endeavor sometimes that we're not really ready for and God really isn't in the lead, but we are. So 
Sometimes if we depend more on our planning than on God's promises, we can be following in David's footsteps. Please hear me. Planning is a good thing. The Bible's for planning. The Bible is not anti-planning. It's just when you plan, you hold your plans really loosely. A man plans his way, the Lord determines his step. Man proposes, God disposes. I think that's Matthew Henry. So don't get attached to your plans. So there's pride. I mean, let me just make it uber practical. And this is a lot of what we just talked about in the discussion. One of the main ways you know you're struggling with spiritual pride is when people that you ought to be listening to their advice is coming and giving you advice and you're ignoring them, right? He should have listened to Joab, the commander of the army. And he's like, nope, shut up, do what I said. Overrides it. So that's David's pride. Now let's look at David's repentance. Skip down to verse 8. So when they had gone about through the whole land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and twenty days, and Joab gave the number of the registration of the people to the king, and there were in Israel 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were 500,000 men. Now David's heart troubled him after he had numbered the people. So David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have acted very foolishly. When David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and speak to David. Thus the Lord says, I am offering you three things. Choose for yourself one of them, which I will do to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Shall seven years of famine come to you in the land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days pestilence in your land? Now consider and see what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us now fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are great. But do not let me fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent a pestilence upon Israel from the morning until the appointed time. And 70,000 men of the people from Dan to Beersheba died. When the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who destroyed the people, It is enough. Now relax your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking down the people and said, Behold, it is I who have sinned and it is I who have done wrong. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against your father's house. Okay. Now, it takes almost 10 months. If you remember the very beginning of Samuel, uh, from your Bible reading, we didn't look at this earlier, but you go back in 1 Samuel, there was a time when they first started fighting the Philistines, and it said only Saul and Jonathan had a sword. There was only two swords in the whole nation of Israel. And now you've got hundreds of thousands of swords. I mean, just huge blessing, prosperity. David's convicted. We're not sure why. But at some level, he gets convicted. And this goes to part of what we talked about in the discussion as well. As soon as there's conviction, start moving towards repentance. David, he knows that what he's done is wrong. It's prideful. Taking this sentence. God offers David three punishments. Which is, this is kind of a strange story, isn't it? But there's great principles here for us. Basically, David, I love this. Think about how many times... During the Saul thing, I probably said Saul was controlling. Saul was manipulative. Right? Saul was trying to micromanage what was happening. God says, you got a choice. Here's the three. David doesn't even choose. Did you notice that? He just says, 
I know what I don't want. I don't want to fall into the hands of men. So don't let me be on the run from my enemies. I'll fall into your hands. He kind of said, he puts it back on God. You choose God. It can be pestilence. It can be the famine. You choose. Why? Because he knows that God is merciful. He knows the heart of God. Yes, God is holy, but God's also mercy. Martin Luther has this great quote where he says, wrath is God's strange work. God will show wrath. God is holy. God will show justice. But God doesn't like to show wrath. He will do it. He's like a good father. He will spank his kids, but he doesn't like to. But he loves to show mercy. He delights in it. Joy in it. So David says, you choose God. The plague comes. And this is like COVID times 10. People are dying like crazy. Thousands of people. In just a matter of a few days. Now, it seems that the whole three days are not even up. And the Lord, in a sense, is grieved. Because this is like a good father and maybe his child, I know I have been here before, has done something really, really bad when they're young. And they really crossed the line. This is not much like they, you know, made a mess and lied about. They really sinned really bad. And you're like, I'm going to spank them very hard. But in the midst of spanking them very hard, and I'm not talking about from sinful anger. I'm talking about from like the one time in your life you actually had righteous anger. You start to see the pain you're inflicting on your child and your father's heart of grief kicks in. You're like, I can't spank him anymore. Even though they deserve it, they probably need a lot more. This is kind of what we see going on here. David's grieved. He's broken. Okay? God has already told the angel to stop. This is what's really interesting in verse 17. God has already said to the angel to stop. And there's no notice that David knows this. Okay? I think this is a clear example of Matthew 6, 8. That God already knows what you want and what you need before you even ask. And oftentimes, He's already bringing about the answer before you even know it's happening. Does that make sense what I'm saying? I mean, this is just this is such a beautiful picture. At this point, and remember, remember where this whole thing started, verse 1. All of Israel must have sinned in some way because the whole story started with God wasn't necessarily angry at David. He was mad at the nation. And because he was mad at the nation, he removed his restraining grace from David. And David calls this census so that this discipline, so to speak, can fall on the nation of Israel. But here's what's beautiful. David either doesn't know or he doesn't care. He's basically, he, listen, he's not trying to be fair and accurate and equitable. He's like, this is my fault. This is all my fault. You see how he's going the opposite direction to Saul? Saul is always trying to say, it's their fault. It was their decision. I mean, yes, technically, they kind of pressured me into helping, but it, it was mainly them. That's pride. Real brokenness, real humility says, it's all me. Here's the clearest place I see this. I'll give you an example in a minute. I can't tell you how many times I'm doing marriage counseling. And every once in a while, I'm going to give you an example in a minute. It's like, yeah, he's the 99% sinner and she's the 1% sinner. That happens every once in a while. Most of the time, it's a lot more like, oh, we got a 60-40 situation going on here, right? And as you're talking to one of them, you're like, listen, if I'm just talking to the man, I'm like, you've got to be gentle. You have got to cherish her. Right? You have got to quit shouting and blah, blah. You're like, yeah, but she never respects me. I was like, you almost have to forget about that. Don't think about her response. You just got to obey the Lord even if she never changes. 
I can't do that. Y'all probably not going to get better. And to the woman, I'm saying a very similar thing. You have to show him respect regardless of how he treats you. You have to honor him as the church honors Christ even when he doesn't deserve it, especially when he doesn't deserve it at some level. Well, I can't do that. He's so mean. And, and usually those don't make it. There has to be a sense of forget what everybody else does. I'm going to own my own sin and repent, even if it ends in divorce because they never change, but I want to be right with Jesus. And that's not just marriage. That's, that's everywhere. Deal with your own sin. That, that, that is maybe the deepest sign of real humility is I just want to repent of my sin regardless of the cost. I don't care what other people know. Guys, this is what's so powerful about Psalm 51. Let me give you something really practical. Same guy that I've talked about multiple times. When I had that kind of confrontation meeting, it was me as pastor and his board chair, and we're confronting him, and, and there finally started to be some repentance, even some tears. And he pulled out a letter he'd wrote on his own, and he started reading it. And it wasn't great, I'm just going to be honest. It wasn't the most bro- There was still a lot of blame shifting, but there was, there was some, yes, I did this. Yeah, there was some genuine brokenness and humility. And me and his pastor both were like, that was beautiful. That was powerful. If when some of these younger staff were coming and confronting you, you you could respond with that kind of language, they'd have forgiven you in an instant. It would have been total reconciliation. And I just said, man, could I have a copy of that? And he's like, I don't know if I'm ready to share with anybody. I said, okay. I said, if you give me a copy, I promise I'll never show it to anybody else if you don't want me to. I, I don't know if I'm ready for that. And then literally it was the next day he was back on the same old path and it went terrible. Where am I going with that? If you ever feel like you're kind of stuck in some sin and it's been weird and you've been defensive and now people are rebuking you and you're trying to repent, one of the best things you can do is write down your confession. I got another man that I'm dealing with right now. So sad. I mean, he's very advanced in life. A church member. I mean, longer than I've been alive. And it's just come out, he's had all these affairs. And he's kind of trying to repent. And at first he was kind of playing games and not going to. And I said, you really want to repent? What you need to do is write it down. Write it all down. So you can tell the church, you can tell your family. Does that make sense? Because there's something about putting it in writing and saying, here it is. And that's what David did in Psalm 51. He basically said, I don't care who knows. 3,000 years later, people can be reading about my adultery and murder. That's real repentance when you get to that place. I'm not trying to hide. I'm not trying to micromanage. I don't care who knows. I just want to be right with the Lord. That's real brokenness and repentance. So now let's look at David's atonement. Verse 18. So Gad came to David that day and said to him, Go up. Erect an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. And David went up according to the word of Gad, just as the Lord had commanded. Aruna looked down and saw the king and his servants crossing over toward him. And Aruna went out and bowed his face to the ground before the king. Then Aruna said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? And David said, To buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord that the plague may be held back from the people. 
Aruna said to David, Let my lord the king take and offer up what is good in his sight. Look, the oxen for the burnt offering, the threshing sledges and the yokes of the oxen for the wood. Everything, O king, Aruna gives to the king. And Aruna said to the king, May the Lord your God accept you. However, the king said to Aruna, No, but I will surely buy it from you for a price. For I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God, which cost me nothing. So David brought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. Thus the Lord was moved by prayer for the land, and the plague was held back from Israel. So the prophet tells David where he has to go to stop the plague. So it seems like, almost like the angel of wrath pauses, but it wasn't necessarily over. It could have continued. Atonement had to be made. The wrath was paused, but it wasn't over. Here's another way that we see David was really broken. He goes, he could have gotten out of this thing in a sense scotch-free. Hey, just take it, man. You can have the threshing floor. You can build the altar. You can have the ox and the wood. He didn't know. I want to play full price. I, I want, and what is he doing? He's trying to say, I take full responsibility for my sin. I don't want the easy way out. I don't want the blame shifting. I mean, I'm going to build an altar to stop this plague, and I want it to cost me something. I sinned. He's, again, guys, when in doubt, err on the side of taking too much responsibility for your sin. Part of what made David so great is I think he gets this. When you read the whole life of David, all the historical books, all the Psalms, he obviously had a real, right, true fear of the Lord most of the time a respect for the holiness of God. But he also knew just how rich in mercy and kindness God was. He, he really loved God. He liked God. He enjoyed God. He wanted to worship God. Yes, he blew it, just like we blow it sometimes. But in the grand scheme of things, he loved the Lord and he worshiped Him. Why, why is David really the gold standard? Because he repented so well. It's not because he was sinless, right? Nope. Nobody in the Old Testament was sinless. It's because he repented so well. That's why he's our model. So what can we learn about this? Okay, several things. First, David was humble for years. Just because you've been humble for years doesn't mean you'll keep being humble. It's a, it's a fight of faith. It's a wrestle in prayer. If he can fall into pride, so can I, so can you. When you are convicted of pride or any sin, take full responsibility. That's the best way to repent. I'm not saying you never get around to talking to other people about their sin. Right? Matthew 7. Get the log out of your own eye. Why? So that what? You can see clearly. So you can see clearly to help your, get the speck out of your brother's eye. There is a time and place to go rebuke somebody else. But when I'm focused on the log of my own eye, I just need to be focused all the way on my log. And not like, I can't wait to get this log out so I can go after her speck. Just focus on the log while you still have a big stick sticking out of your face. Okay? Deal with it like it's the only issue. There was another guy. This has been years ago. Again, he'd had multiple affairs. And it comes out talking double digits. It was terrible. And his wife was willing to try to work with him to take it back. Take him back. But at one point we were meeting. But obviously, she didn't know this was going on. She's shocked. It's cataclysmic. 
she's having a pretty hard time, right? It's not just like, oh, yeah, you don't overlook this one. And one time we were kind of doing a counseling appointment, and she's just, she's weeping. She's like, I'm so hurt, and I'm so angry. I want to forgive you. I'm trying to forgive you. I'm not planning on divorcing you. I mean, she's, she's it's amazing to me. But we kind of take a little bathroom break or something. He's like, man, she's just, I don't know why she's dragging this out, and she's just making this harder on me. Like, I'm trying to repent, and she just won't forgive me. And I was like, are you serious, dude? I mean, you have like a decade of secret sin that you've been lying and you just dumped it on her. And you're mad that she's not instantly cheery? He said, well, I'm just saying that all of our marriage troubles are not all my fault. She has some blame as well. Now listen, is that technically true? Yes. But when you've had 50 affairs and the other person had zero affairs... The argument that you need to be making is not, well, technically we both had some fault, right? It's like, you just need to drop that line forever for the rest of your marriage, at least for the next decade, and just work on yourself. Now, why am I sharing this story? I want you guys to see the propensity of playing the victim card out of pride when the heat gets too much in conviction. And David is the right picture of how to do it. I'm not going to blame anybody else. I don't want to blame. He, he could have rightly, in some sense, blamed the whole nation. But he's like, nope, it's, it's all me. It's all me. I take it all. Here's a third point that may seem strange, but I think it will be helpful. Our life is ultimately not about us. It's about God. So this is the end of 2 Samuel. It's basically the end of David's life. And it comes with the human hero blowing it in pride. He blew it by trying to take credit for all the good stuff God had done in and through and for and around him. So the book ends humbling David, exposing David's pride, David's sin, and magnifying God's mercy. That sounds like a great place to end. And in many ways, that should be the story of my life. My sin getting exposed me getting humbled and God getting more mercy. Obviously, that doesn't mean, well, let me go do some big scandalous sin so it can get... No. This goes back to another thing we had in the discussion. Just the little tiny sins, the white-collar domesticated sins of your heart. We should be more freed up in confessing those and talking about those and not being like, yeah, I'm, I'm still a sinner. I'm still a real sinner. Not near as bad as I used to be, but I'm not near what I ought to be. Right, And I'm happy to talk about it, not in a boastful way, but I'm, I'm humble to talk about it in a way that magnifies the mercy of Christ. So, conclusion. There, there's one thing kind of greater here. I mean, I'll, if you go read this same account as in 1 Chronicles 21, we're not going to do it right now for time's sake, but you can go read it. And part of what 1 Chronicles 21 tells us is this is the spot where they decided to build the temple. Which, what's the temple? It's the place in the Old Testament where God meets man. Where God touches earth. Where God says, my holiness and my wrath and my justice and my mercy and my kindness and my love, they come together on the sacrificial altar. And the great high priest can come into the Holy of Holies once a year with the proper cleansing 
and the blood so there can be atonement. But even all that is pointing to the true temple, the Lord Jesus Christ who came. And Jesus also, he is the son of David, eternally seated on the throne. And think about what he did. He had no sin. He had no pride. He had no reason that he should have received any wrath. But he so loved his chosen adopted people that he's like, I'll take all the blame. They don't have to take one ounce. Although they deserve to take it all, I'll take all the blame on my back. So here's our closing thought, guys. When you're wrestling with your own pride, and maybe it's just something kind of small, like this is even so small, it would almost be embarrassing to confess it to somebody or talk about it. Think about the great pain and shame and suffering that the Lord Jesus was willing to go through for you and me, literally stripped naked and hung before all the world, bearing our shame. And if he tells us the path of humility, the path of safety, the path of honesty, is sometimes to take a little awkwardness and having to talk kind of vulnerably about some of our sin that's kind of embarrassing that maybe we're still struggling with it. That ought to be such a tiny, small price to pay compared to the infinite suffering that he spent for us so that we could have this freedom to enjoy the process of getting sanctified by his blood. Let's pray. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, love so divine, demands my life, my soul, my all. God, convict us of our sin. Grow us up in Christ and in righteousness and in humility. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this episode of Truth Wars with Dr. Olin Stubbs. We want to remind you to please leave a review for this podcast wherever you listen and to share this podcast with any friends or family that you think may be blessed by Olin's teaching.